0: It's good to be here this morning. I'm excited. I'm actually, I've got to tell you something before I start. I'm excited to be standing here dressed this morning. Now you're looking thinking, what, where on earth is she going with this? Well, at 2 a.m. this morning, Matthew and I, we're, we're kind of late sleepers, so we, we didn't go to sleep well, maybe about midnight. And we just, you know when you just get into that deep, beautiful sleep, we were just there. And all of a sudden, I felt like I'd been transported back into World War II. And all these alarms are going off. And it kind of took me a little while to figure out what in the world was going on. What country am I in? What time is it? What, what is happening? And uh, Matthew, meanwhile, is on the bed trying to switch off the, the smoke alarm. I'm like, baby, I don't think it's just our room. I have a feeling it's the whole hotel so by the time we'd kind of even got ourselves together, I'm thinking if it's a bomb, it's already probably gone off because it's took us about five minutes just to figure out what our names are at this point. And um, so we, we finally get outside. Matt's deciding what shoes to put on. Like, does, does he go for the smart shoe with his shorts and vest? Or does he go for the trainers? Does he go for the comfy look? And I'm like, baby, we're about to burn down. Just get your shoes on. And we finally make it out into the lobby, and I'm there dressed in my pyjamas. Matt's there in his also his pyjamas with his nice smart shoes. And um, we walk outside to see everybody else already dressed. Some even had their luggage with them. And I'm thinking... I was not equipped for this. I'm stood outside in my pajamas with my flip-flops on. It's freezing cold. Matt doesn't know what day of the week it is. And there's people here all with the luggage. They're kind of, they're ready for this. You guys must have fire alarms a lot because they were dressed, they were ready, and they had their luggage good to go. And I'm thinking, well, if this hotel burns down, I have no Bible, I have no notes, and oh my goodness, I have no clothes. How do I explain that? But mercifully, it was just, um, I think someone saw a nice red button and thought, oh, what does that do? Um, And so it turned out not to be a fire, praise God. And so I could come fully dressed today. So it's good. I'm glad to be in the house of God, fully dressed and with you this morning. Well, my name's Becky Murray. And if you've not gathered from the accent already, I'm from England. I'm from the north of England, so I don't quite speak like the queen. I wish I did. Um, But I don't. Um, But we run a missions organization called One by One. And we basically have four major parts to our project. So the first part is we run a children's home. We have the most beautiful kids in the world, bar none. I know I'm biased, but it's true. And we've got 150 kids who have just, they've been rescued from things they shouldn't even understand the concept of, let alone have gone through it. And um, when we got the social workers' report for many of our children, Matt and I just sobbed. Words like torture and rape came up multiple times, and it was just heartbreaking. And yet, four years on, we moved the children in in 2012, and four years on, you look at these children, and they're full of joy, and they're full of passion, and they're full of love. And I'm, I, I feel like I'm the one that learns from them. You know, so many times we take the kids in and we're like, we'll teach them what it is to be a Christian. Let me tell you, they're the ones teaching me. I've got one little girl, she's HIV positive. But when she prays for the sick, they are always healed. And the thing that amazes me about this little girl is that currently, she is still HIV positive. And I've never once seen a reaction within her of thinking, well, when I'm healed... Then I'll go pray for the sick. You know, when I've got my, what I need, then I'll go and serve others. I never see a glimmer of that in her. Immediately, she knows the spirit of God is upon her and she wants to go pray for the sick and see them healed. And then she knows she can lead them to Jesus. And yet she herself is still HIV positive. And I look at life like little Jessica and I think, I want to be like that, you know, they show me what it is to be Christ-like. So I have some of the most beautiful children on the planet. We just had took 20 new kids in last week. It's always a highlight of any trip in Kenya for me is taking in the children. You see, there's always faces at the fence, and it's those faces that keep me awake at night. We've got 150 gorgeous kids in the home. We'll show you a video of that in just a few minutes, but you'll get to see some of their beautiful faces. Um... But for every one that I take in, there's another 20, there's another 30, just as needed stood outside, just still waiting to belong, still waiting to be fed, still waiting to be given an education. And it's those faces at the fence that keep me awake at night. That it's those faces at the fence that push me to be more like Jesus, that make me want to do more, be more, because it just, I feel sometimes like I have a teaspoon in my hand and I'm en- trying to empty an ocean using a teaspoon and sometimes it can be overwhelming, but every time it becomes overwhelming, Jesus just reminds me to just take it down to the one. You see, we can all stop for one life. I'm no evangelist, right Bonkey bonky, or I'm no great orator, but I can love one child. You know, I can't change the world, but I can change one little child's world with the love of Jesus. And so every time I start to become overwhelmed, I take it back down to the one and just stop for the one right in front of me. And so last week we took 21 new ones in. And um, if you would like to sponsor any of our children, it's $30 a month. There's some information at the back. You can get their information. You can see their gorgeous little face. It tells you all about them. It tells you their little story so far. You can write to them. You can come out and visit them. And we encourage that. If you can do it, we'll take you. And um, it's just always an honor when children get to meet their sponsors, it's just such a joy for both ways, for the child and for the sponsor, it's beautiful. So if you're able to do that, there's information out the back, please help us with that. Um, But we have 150 kids in our home, we have um, total orphans who live with us permanently, where we're trying to become their legal guardians. And then we also have an education program for the children that are, they come from families, but they're just desperately poor. So they can't afford regular meals. They can't afford education. They can't afford any medical care. They barely wear clothes. And so we take them in as well. So they come first thing in the morning and we educate them and feed them and then send them back to their families in an evening. Um, and so that for me is an absolute joy of my life. That's, that's a good reason to get out of bed in the morning. Because these kids, they're just... They bless me beyond beyond anything I can compare. Um, the second part of what we do is called the Dignity Project. Um, so the Dignity Project is where we go and raise awareness about human trafficking. In our region of Kenya, the girls are so poor that they can't afford sanitary items. And so because of that, they miss a week of school every month. We'll add that up throughout the years, and they've missed a quarter of education. So when they finish their... Um, it 's called elementary school here, right we call it primary back home, but elementary school when they finish elementary school they don 't have the the knowledge to go on to the next school, and so many of them are just looking for any job opportunities also where we are, there is no national framework there 's no there 's no record to say that child was even ever born and so if that child is an orphan, someone can take that child and take it somewhere. And who's looking for that child? Who's to say that child ever even existed? And for me, this is a huge, huge burden. I have several mothers come to me saying, will you pray? My child's been missing for four months, five months, and I have no idea where they are. And they've never heard of human trafficking. They presumed um, slavery was abolished years ago. Tragically, human trafficking is bigger than it's ever been. And so we go and we teach the girls about human trafficking. We raise the awareness. We teach them about the tactics traffickers will use, when they're likely to be targeted and things like that. We also give the girls underwear and we give them reusable sanitary products that mean they can stay in school for a whole year, no matter what the week of the month. And then the third part to the Dignity Project is that we also empower them to say no. Many of the girls in the culture we work in, if if a teacher, for example, gives them extra support, she then owes him something. If um, a taxi driver gives her a ride because it's raining and the mud is coming bad, then he expects a payment. And because it's a cultural thing there, even their own mothers are not telling these girls, you can say no. No. And so we go in, we go in with the support of the police. We have a a high-ranking member of the police force with us on these Dignity Days just to raise the girls and empower them to say no, that actually their bodies are precious and they can say no to sex. And then we finish the day by just summing up that actually no price can be put on their life because the greatest, most highest price has already been paid for them through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've seen so many hundreds of girls come to salvation through attending one of these Dignity Days. Again, information about that is at the back if you want to get on board with that. A third project, what we do in Kenya is uh, we've recently employed uh, four evangelists who we partnered up with a ministry called Metro World Child run by an incredible man of God named Bill Wilson. And we teach them, we train them up in the Metro training, and then they go into schools and take the gospel into schools all around our region. So currently on a bad week, we're reaching about 8,000 kids a week. And on a good week, it's 11,000 kids a week. And um, just last week, I was in a meeting with one of the government officials out there to try and get it into more schools. And so it looks like that's going ahead. So we'll be able to reach up to 15,000 children every single week with the gospel. <laughs> Amen. That that right there can change a nation. That can change a nation. It, Bill Wilson always says it's easier to raise boys and girls than try and fix broken men and women. And if we can invest now into the future of Kenya, we'll see a different nation in years to come because we'll see a a group of children who know what it is to be loved by Jesus, who know what it is to know his word, who know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they'll go on and they'll be the ones that see their nation turn to Christ. So I'm, I'm very excited by that. The fourth and final project that I'll tell you about just before I show you the little video is we last year, no, this year, in fact, January of this year, um, we launched a brand new project in Sri Lanka. Now, we're pretty busy with Kenya. We're also full-time pastors back in England. Um, But God just kept saying to me, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka. And so I prayed and prayed into it, thinking, you know, is, you know, I'm supposed to pray about the nation. I'm I'm supposed to find an organization there that I'm meant to sow into, and you know, we just kill, keep feeling that prompting. And so we we actually went out there last year to investigate. I didn't even know anything about Sri Lanka. I knew nothing about the nation whatsoever. And um, we went out there. A, a door miraculously opened, as it always does when God's involved. And we went out to Sri Lanka and found out that there's a whole group of people there, a group of widows right in the northern tip. They call themselves the forgotten people. See, Sri Lanka went through three decades almost of war. It's a nation that's just been ravaged. It's desperately poor, but they've gone through years and years of war. It's left people just empty and broken. And, um, huge organizations like UNICEF and the Red Cross have all been kicked out of the nation. And so the people just feel forgotten. They feel like they're forgotten all about, and they're just, they feel alone. You know, sometimes you can feel incredibly alone. You can sit in a crowded room, but feel incredibly alone. But God wants you to know you're not alone in his eyes. He sees you. He sees you. He knows all about you and you are not alone. But anyway, These widows felt ever so alone. And so we just went in and we started a feeding program. We started a discipleship program. Many of these widows were previously um, Hindus or Buddhists, but we started discipling and evangelizing them. And now they're doing so well. We feed them every day. There's 257 of them being fed every day. And I know that God's going to do a great work through Sri Lanka and it's going to be through these precious widows. Um, So please keep that in your prayers. We have a little booklet at the back that I would... Be honoured if you would take as you walk out. It just covers some of the little projects that we're involved in. Please take it and please pray for us. We really, really need your prayers apart, so we would appreciate that. Finally, before I show the video, we've got a little book out the back as well. Um, It's called Mother Bumala. So basically, when I started in Kenya, I foolishly thought everybody liked missionaries. Well, apparently not. (laughs) And so I arrive in Kenya, you know, with these... Hopes to change children's lives and build a beautiful school and serve the community. And I thought, who's not going to like that? And um, when I started there, my nickname from the locals was The Witch. Now, if my husband was here, he would make a joke about that that I do not approve of. Um, But it's been through years of just loving the people that little by little, no longer do they call me The Witch. The name of our village is Bumala, Bumala B., and so they've actually given me a new nickname in the last year, and that's Mother Bumala. Now, I will take that over a witch any day of the week. But in there, there's just lots of little stories of the wonders God's done, some of which I'll share about this morning. But just God is a good God. He's a good God. And when we truly fall in love with him and lay it all down at his feet, he will do be above and beyond what you can even imagine with your life if you'll just let him. And God, over these last few years, has just done wonder after wonder that I'm amazed by. So if you've got a passion for missions or you know someone who has a passion for missions, please get one of these. We, just any donation, $5, whatever, just any donation, because it all goes back into the work what we do in Kenya as well. And just pick it up and pass it on to them, because I pray that it will inspire them and encourage them um, and make them laugh along the way. There's some funny stories in there, so... Right, I'm going to show you the clip so you can see my beautiful babies, and then I'll come come and bring a message to you. Thank you. It is not just an orphanage, it is my home. it's not just a school, it's my future. eyes looking back at me Will we leave behind the innocent to grieve? It is not just a meal, it is my nutrition. On the run, when our lives have only begun It is not just a mosquito net, It's my health. I am not just an orphan, I am a son. I am not just an orphan, I am a daughter. You are not just a sponsor, you are my family. It's not just a donation, it's my life. It's my life. It's my life. It is my life. It is my life. It's my life. It is my life. It's my life. Aren't they beautiful? I think they take after their mom. I think that's what it is. I always joke that I have gained quite a lot of weight over the last few years, but for 151 kids, I'm not doing too bad. Only one of them is white, but, you know, that's beside the point. Well, I want to speak this morning about being a people of vision. Um, If you've been in church more than two minutes, you'll have heard the scripture from Proverbs that says, Without a vision, people perish. And it's important that we all know the plan and purposes God has for our lives, because who knows that if God has a plan and a purpose for every single person in this place. I don't know whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you work in Starbucks, or whether you're a mama. I don't know what your day job is, but what I do know is God has a plan and a purpose for your life, not just 20 years down the road, but right now. And so I want to speak about principles of vision, principles of vision. So the first principle of vision that I discovered was preparation, preparation. Now, when I was 18, I went on a missions trip. I'm not entirely sure how I quite ended up on the trip. I did not have um, a passion for missions at that stage. As a very, very small little girl, I actually did. As a three- and four-year-old, I would cry and cry and say, Mommy, I want to go to Africa and feed the babies. Um, But then, you know, life takes over and you become a teenager, those wonderful years of your life. And um, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I loved God, but I wanted a nice big house, and I wanted a nice car, and I wanted everything just so. Well, that's God's humor right there, because if you're a missionary working with children, everything is not just going to be so at all. But that's how I wanted life, you know? I wanted everything nice and organized and corpman, corpum. I can't even say that, but you way you put it in, that's the one. That she just said it. I'm not going to even try. But anyway, I wanted everything just so. And um, so I wanted to be a lawyer. But I went on the, this mission trip with my with my local church, I think just because I like food. And I like different cultures, different foods, listening to different languages. I'm terrible at learning languages. Again, God's humor sending me to the outbacks where they speak tribal languages. But um, I found myself in Romania, and ironically working with orphans. And um, I'm sat by a lake one day. It was a day off, and I'm sat by a lake, and all of a sudden, I felt the spirit of God speak to me. And I'd never, I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard God speak to my heart so directly and clearly before. But at the age of 18, God spoke to me and said that I would run a children's home. That was totally out of the blue. It was not on my radar in the slightest. In fact, I was on the mission trip with another girl called Becky. And, you know, some people are just born to work with children. They're kind of the larger-than-life characters, you know, very happy, jolly, loud, you know, those kind of people. I wanted to study law. So I thought God had got the wrong Becky because the other Becky was far more appropriate for the job. But it turns out God knew me better than I knew myself because now the thought of doing law just does not interest me in the slightest. Yet my babies, that interests me greatly. Um, but God took me on a period after he told me about the children's home. I remember coming home from the mission trip and telling everyone, okay, God said, I'm going to run a children's home. And you know, and, and so then the questions had come well, where? I, I don't know. Guatemala. I don't know. I speak Spanish. So I learned Spanish at school. So maybe God's going to send me to South America somewhere. I don't know. And, um, the questions would come and, a year went by and then two years went by and then a decade went by and all of a sudden very well-meaning friends would say to me, are you sure God said, did, did God really say? And then the enemy would whisper, did God say, was it God's voice or did you just, you know, eat something dodgy the night before? And, um, All the kind of voices started coming in. And in those years, it actually took 13 years from God giving me the promise of a children's home to the day I opened the doors of the children's home. It took 13 years. And those 13 years for me personally were quite frustrating. I didn't get it. But now I look back, I get it. You see, for every vision, there is always a season of preparation. There's always a season of preparation. And actually, had God launched me as an 18-year-old, I would not have been ready. If I'd have been sent as an 18-year-old and called a witch, I think I'd have just gone home crying. And um, God took me through a season where he just began to work on my heart. And as I looked at the Bible, I found good company. You see, everybody has to wait. Everybody goes through a season of preparation. Joseph waited 13 years from the point where he has the dreams of being great, and then all of a sudden he finds himself in a pit. And then he finds himself in slavery, and then he finds himself in prison. And I'm sure in those moments he's thinking, whoa, 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 this is not what the dream said. This is not what, how it was supposed to work out. But actually, God had to entrust him with the prison guards before he could entrust him with a nation. Likewise, Abraham. Abraham's given the promise of a child and yet waits 25 years before he sees his little boy Isaac. Moses waits 40 years. David waits 22 years. So imagine we read these scriptures about King David and we kind of read it like it's a nice story. Just pause for a second and imagine that you're David. So Samuel has come and anointed you as king. You're you're the next big thing, you know. He's anointed you king and check me out, brothers. I might be smaller than you guys, but, you know, God's chosen me. And what happens the next day is the red carpet rolled out for him, is the golden throne set before him, none, none of that. He's back out in the field tending the sheep. But if his heart wasn't capable of tending sheep, it's not capable of tending a nation. And Jesus, there's no better example than Jesus. Jesus waited 30 years to start a three-year ministry. And God will work, God will take us on seasons where he just begins to nurture our hearts, where he begins to prepare our hearts. You know, you might feel, you might be in that situation where God gave you a promise and it was years ago and year after year is passing by and the doubts are kicking in and you're thinking, well, God, you said this, what is going on? Did I get it wrong? Did I not hear you? What is happening? What is happening? Well, I just want to read you a scripture from Isaiah 49, verse 2. It's just one verse, so you don't need to turn unless you want to. But Isaiah 49, verse 2 says this. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. A quiver is the the bag that holds the, the bows when an arch is about to go out. And a quiver sits right on the shoulder of the archer. And if you've got a promise from God, please, please wait for God's timing. You see, you can go off doing your own thing. You could have gone off and done something similar to what it sounded like God was asking you to do. But if you will just remain there in that quiver then at the appointed time, God will draw you out and you will be ready to pierce the darkness. You'll be sharper than you were if you just went about doing your own thing. If you're in the period of preparation, just be patient. And I know that's easy to say. I was frustrated, so I'm preaching to myself right here as well. I was frustrated in those 13 years, but boy, did I need those 13 years. In that period of 13 years, God just began to woo my heart. He began to, to win my heart. You see, I'd, I was brought up as a Christian. I was brought up in a beautiful Christian family. And I knew all about God. I was uh, saved at nine years old and filled with the Holy Spirit when I was 14. But I think I had this mindset of God as being a Lord and a master. Like he was some angry judge that I had to appease. But over the 13-year period of just getting to know him more, he began to win my heart. And when Jesus fully wins your heart, nothing else compares. There's no sacrifice too great because in the light of eternity and in the light of your Savior, nothing is too much of a sacrifice. Nothing is too difficult in the light of Jesus. And in those 13 years, God transformed who I was. I needed that period of preparation. I might not have enjoyed it, but I needed it. The second principle with vision is provision. Again, for the sake of time, I won't read the whole scripture. But in John chapter 6, it's the famous scripture about when a little boy just has his packed lunch. And there's a whole multitude of 5,000 people that Jesus wants to feed. The disciple goes and brings this little boy with his packed lunch. He's got a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. And the disciple brings him to Jesus and says, but how far can that go against so many? And sometimes we look at our own life and we think, well... I'm no orator, I'm no this, I'm no that, I'm no the other. I'm I'm not capable of this, that, and the other. And we put our excuses out as to why we're not capable of doing what God's asking us to do. And we've all got very valid reasons. We've got mortgages, and we've got children, and we've got this and that and the other. And, well, God, give me 20 years or give me 10 years, and then maybe, let's see, you know? But if we'll just put our nothingness in the hands of the master... It's always enough. It's always enough. I remember when I first started with One by One, it was back in 2006. There was no children's home back then. That was a long way off. But I had the dream that I still carried in my heart. And um, we were working alongside an evangelist named Nathan Morris, an incredible man of God. And he would go and do big mass gospel campaigns. And I would head up his humanitarian arm. And um, you see the gospel to me, you can't say to a hungry man in the street, well, God loves you, but God bless, bye-bye, and walk on and do your thing. If God, you know, if he's hungry, then let's show him the love of God. Feed his heart and feed his belly as well, you know. And so I would go and do big feeding programs and then the the crusade, the big gospel campaign would happen in the evening. And um, I had this precious woman cook for me a, a bowl of rice, I'll never forget it. It was a little blue box, probably no no bigger than the the square here. A little blue box of rice. And um she cooked it for me. I can't I can't even boil water. I can't cook. I think Matthew felt deceived when he married me because my mum can cook, my sisters can cook, and I think Matt, when he was marrying me, thought, Yes. And then he married me and it was like beans on toast, baby. And um, so I had this precious mama cooking some rice for me, and she made rice to feed 50, which was brilliant. And um, we arrived at the venue, which was an amputee center, and we were in Sierra Leone, and the war in Sierra Leone was brutal. They would often say, the soldiers would say to small little children, does daddy like long-sleeved or short-sleeved? shirts and the the boy would answer whether daddy wears long shirts or short sluts and based on the child's answer the soldier would then cut the man's arm off at that point and do it all in front of the child so then for the years the child thought it was their fault why daddy had no hand and no arm and the the war in Sierra Leone was brutal and we were in this amputee center now bearing in mind in Sierra Leone there's no government aid whatsoever so if you don't work you don't eat if you're an amputee You don't work, you don't eat. And so we we wanted to take the gospel there. And so we went with our food to Feed 50. And when we walked in the venue, to my horror, there was about 100 people there. And the whole time I'm thinking, I don't have enough food for all these people. And I felt like that would almost represent the gospel badly. You know, I'd brought people here to feed them. And if I share the gospel but then don't have enough food to feed them, is it going to reflect badly on the gospel? And I've got all this going on in my mind but we just prayed over it, and we started serving out the food. Well, it wasn't until the end of the day. I'm a little bit slow on the uptake sometimes, like with the fire alarm. Sometimes it takes me a while to catch up. But it was the very end of the day. <clears throat> everybody had eaten, and then this precious family came out, and they said, listen, we've got a family back here who are just too ill. They weren't able to, able to leave their little house. Can, with the leftovers, can we feed them? So I was like, sure. Well, they brought out this washing bowl, for the leftovers, and the washing bowl was bigger than the little blue box that I'd started with. Yet we'd fed 100 people, and then the leftovers went in this washing bowl that's bigger than what I'm starting with. And I remember looking at that situation thinking, well, that was lucky. The next day, I go to another venue, and this same precious mama's cooked rice to feed 50 people again. And I walk into the venue. Now, you would think, Bearing in mind, this was just yesterday. God did an outstanding miracle. Outstanding. And this was just yesterday. So you would think when I walked into this venue and saw 200 people, that I would be filled with faith and think, wow, an opportunity for God to do it again. You would be wrong. I was horrified. I walked into this venue and there's 200 people. I have nowhere near enough food. You need to know, if you've promised hungry people, you're going to feed them. And you don't feed them, you're in trouble. And there was just me and one other girl. Now, I was a bit thinner back then. And so I'm looking at this other girl who was a bit stockier. And I'm thinking, well, she might be able to take care of herself, but I am done for. Like, I'm eating alive today. And so the whole time I'm preaching the gospel, there's a fire exit right here. And the whole time I'm preaching, I am eyeing up this fire exit thinking, okay, chuck the shoes off. That's where you're going to run. You've invited a real woman of faith today. You see that, right? And um, so we're preaching the gospel. I learned quickly, preach the gospel, then feed them. If you do it the other way around, you've lost them. So we were preaching the gospel, and then it came to the time of serving the food. Now, where I'm from in England, in Yorkshire, we're notorious for just loving our food. You know, if you're going to give us a food, give us a nice big portion, you know? And um, when you're feeding the hungry, I had the same mindset. I didn't want to give them an appetizer. I, I wanted to feed these people. And so we would, you know, plate the bowls up like this and uh, we started serving out the first few portions and we had these beautiful women helping to serve out the food and this this precious Sierra Leonean woman came up to me and she said listen your portion sizes are way too big your foods you've nowhere near got enough food to begin with but if you're giving this size portion out you are going to run out well for a moment I'm thinking like I'm Elijah or something you know God did it yesterday maybe he'll do it today. And um, I'm saying, no, we're going to give this size portion. We're going to really feed these people. These people are hungry and we're going to feed them well today. So she kind of just raised her eyebrows as many of the Africans often do. They'll raise their eyebrow at you like, you're crazy. Mm -hmm." And then she walked off with the plate. She came up a second time. And by now my rice is halfway down. She came up a second time. She said, I'm telling you, all these people are still yet to eat. You have got to give smaller portions. Um, I kind of wavered for a minute and I'm thinking, you know, just what if God, just what if we believe you? Just what if? Crazy, call me crazy, call me stupid, but just what if God will do it again? And so I persisted with the large portions. She came back a third time. Now by this time, I have literally about this much rice left in the bottom of my little blue box. And all these people at this side have still not eaten. She came back a third time. She said, I am telling you now, You need to give smaller portions. Now, if my box was still full and she was saying this, I think I'd have been like, we're going for it. But it wasn't. My box was down here. I'm thinking, I have been stupid. Why didn't I just listen to her in the first place? If I did smaller portions, then at least more of the people would have eaten, you know? And for a second, I almost wavered and said, you know what, you're right. But I looked at the girl who was with me. And the girl who was with me, you would never see her on a microphone. She's real quiet. She's kind of one of the the behind-the-scenes kind of people. And all she did was she looked at me and she just nodded. That was it. She didn't quote scripture over me. She didn't speak in tongues over me. She just nodded. But I knew that that nod said, I'm with you. We're together in this. I'm thinking, well, if we die, we die together. And um, I needed that nod we're a family together. There's not one person kind of out there alone, some lone ranger. We're a family together and we need each other. And that day I needed that girl because had it not been for her, just simply nodding, just a nod and a smile, that's all it took to say, I'm with you. I would have definitely halted and gone back. But because of that nod, I stuck to it and I said, okay, no, we're going to give these size portion. Well, I remember serving the last three plates. I kid you not, there was not one grain of rice left in this little blue box. Not one grain. And there's three plates on the table in front of me. So I'm thinking, okay, this is it. Exit door. Plan B right there. And I'm getting ready. And all of a sudden, this same woman who three times had come and said, you need to give smaller portions. She came back a fourth time. As she's approaching the table, I'm thinking, here we go. Here she comes again. And she just kind of raised her eyebrows again. And she said, well, that's it. Everybody's eaten and there's three spare plates. I was like, thank you, Jesus. I don't die today. Yay. <laughs> Woo. And in that moment, that was 10 years ago, but God taught me something so precious right back then where we just, we, there was no nonprofit. There was no children's home. There was, there was no website. There was nothing just had a passion for God and a passion for the poor. And in our nothingness, we just had this tiny little box to feed 50 people. But when we are willing to put that box in his hands, there's always enough. And I don't know what's going on in your life and in your situation. And you may look at your life and think, Wow, this is just beyond me. This is beyond my capabilities. It's in those moments where God's just shining down because if you will submit to him and just allow him to really take control, he will astound you. And so when we got the bill for the children's home, I remember when it was a dream, it was wonderful. It was exciting. And then all of a sudden the architect bill drops on your lap and we had about a thousand pounds saved up, which felt like a billion to me at that point a thousand pound it took me years to save up and this bill came and it was for 150,000 pounds that's probably about is it about 200,000 dollars or something and that just felt like impossible to me absolutely impossible this exciting dream suddenly hitting home with this bill in my hand of okay well now we're gonna find out if god said or if this was just me but in that moment i was able to remember that little blue box of rice I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, if I give God what the tiny bit I've got, well, just maybe he'll follow it through. And he did. We were op- able to open up the children's home in 2012, completely debt free, not o- owing a penny on it. And we've seen him do that again and again and again and again. But every time I'm stood in that moment where it's an exciting story afterwards, but during, it's not exciting at all. It is nerve wracking. But every time I'm in one of those nerve-wracking moments, I think back to that little blue box of rice, and it just helps. You know, the Bible says, remember the works of the Lord, and it says that for a reason. And if you're finding yourself at crosswords where you're thinking this is just not possible, just remember everything God's done. He's been for you there in the past, and he's not going to let you go down now. we've seen God just provide again and again and again. So the first principle of vision is preparation. The The second principle of vision is provision. And then the third one is protection. In Acts 28 verses 1 to 10, we read of Paul. And Paul's just been shipwrecked and he finds himself landed on this island called Malta. And um, he's obviously just been shipwrecked, so he's a bit wet and damp. And so he's by the fire and he's stoking the fire to get warm. And all of a sudden out of this fire comes up a snake and it attaches to him and bites him. And all the people watching are saying, oh my goodness, this one must have been a real wrong and he must have been a bad one. Like the shipwreck didn't get him. And so the snake's going to get him. He must be a bad one. But Paul just shakes it off and suffers no ill effects whatsoever. And immediately afterwards, the people are watching, just waiting for him to die. And he doesn't die. And so then they say, oh, he must be a god. Let me tell you something right now that I've learned. Don't base your identity on what the crowds think. You know, the crowds will change their mind about you so much. I remember we, were, we had the honor of living in Mobile, Alabama for about a year. And we were part of a, a revival that was taking place where God was doing these astounding wonders. We saw a lady who'd been paralyzed for, I think, 23 years get up out of a wheelchair, begin walking. And we saw all kinds of miracles. We'd seen many of these miracles on the on the floor of Africa during the Crusades, in the, in the outreaches, in the bush-bush, as we call it. But there was no documentation to back it up there. There was no x-rays and no scans where... This was happening in Mobile, Alabama. And so all of a sudden, we're able to get documentation to prove the legitimacy of these miracles. We're getting brain scans of a little boy who had a brain tumor at age eight. And it shows the scan with the tumor. And then he came for prayer. And then he goes back for a scan. And the tumor's gone. And we've got birth scans right there. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. A very exciting time in our life. And because we were connected to the Man of God, Evangelist Nathan, at that time, everybody was so kind to us. I gained I don't know how much weight because everyone wanted to cook for us. And um, I'm experiencing that again here with the Cajun food. It's good. I can't live here for too long because, like, it just won't be good. But anyway, and um, everyone wanted to cook for us, and they blessed us, and it was just amazing, just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Well, during that time, I got pregnant with my Beautiful little boy Josiah. He's five now, and he's an absolute bundle of joy. But I got pregnant with him while I was living in Mobile, Alabama, and we came home to for the birth. And when I gave birth to Josiah, we quickly discovered he was very ill. He had a rare bowel disorder, and in the first year of his life, we almost lost him twice. And I remember being sat in the, in the um, ICU room, ICU unit, and there was no one there. And my little baby's dying. And I'm thinking, well, where is everyone? Where, where's everyone cooking the cakes now? And where's everyone wanting to bless us now when we're in the midst of our own crisis? And the crowd had gone. And it's not the crowd's fault. They weren't there. They weren't there in England. I I'm, I'm don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I quickly discovered is that, you know what, if we will base everything that we are on an audience of one, on him alone if we base our identity purely on him and who we are in him then we'll be secure but if we face our identity or make our identity based upon who people think we are what the crowd says we are we'll quickly be disappointed but anyway that's not in the notes that is off track so that was just for free but um we we quickly um what am i doing i'm doing on protection aren't i okay So back to Paul. He shakes off the snake, suffers no ill effects. There we go. And God protected him through it. We are seeing God just protect us again and again and again. For those who were here last year in Jennings, Matthew shared his testimony. How two years ago this week, my husband was given two hours left to live. He contracted a a strain of malaria that really affected all his major organs. His his brain, his lungs, his liver, his kidneys, um, his heart. I mean, there's not much left when all that goes. He had his toes functioning, and that was about it. Everything had just gone into organ failure, and um, the malaria had spread throughout his blood. If you get five percent, it's severe. On one of, on the first day, he was at twenty percent. The day after that, he went to fifty percent. Now I'm a nurse by background, and medically speaking, you don't come back from that. We had the lab report literally just this week. The, the woman who was the microbiologist looking after Matt's case got in touch with us this week. And she said she honestly thought she was looking at a dead man's slides because it was easier to count. They would do a slide of his blood, and there was about tw- 200 samples on there. And she would normally count how many cells have got the malaria parasite. But she said with Matt's case, it was easier to count the cells that didn't have it than the cells that did. And she was adamant he was a dead man. But when the grace of God, when you're walking in the will and the plan and the purposes of God, God will protect you. He will bring you through. His grace is sufficient. I just want to share one last story before I move on. And that's, um, I was it was again in Sierra Leone. All my scary stories seem to happen there. I'm going to stop going to Sierra Leone. And um, I was in Sierra Leone and we were in three cars making our way from one area to another. And my husband, Matthew, was in one of the front cars. I was in the back car. He was in the AC car, I was in the regular car, just saying. And um, they're they're off on their way and I'm in this last car and all of a sudden our car breaks down. We're in the middle of nowhere, like the city was about an hour ago and now it's literally just narrow lanes and like nothing other than trees around. And we broke down, well, I'm kind of one of those people who just everything's an adventure. So I get out of the car and I'm exploring and they're fixing the car and I'm just wandering, looking around and... All of a sudden, afternoon starts to turn to dusk, and then dusk starts to turn to evening, and it's getting dark. So I kind of stay close to the vehicle. And it wasn't until our driver started to get nervous. When he got nervous, I got nervous. And he said, "Um, I think you need to sit in the back of the car and duck down. Where am I? Oh, my goodness. This is not good. And he had had opened up the, the trunk, and he's looking. Is it the trunk, the front end where the engine is? You call that the trunk? the hood, the hood, he'd open the hood, he's looking under the hood, and um, if it was me, like, I know nothing about cars, so it's just one metal bit and another metal bit, and I'd kind of look and be like, it's all there, I think, well, thankfully, my driver was better than me, and so he looks, and he'd realized he needed this one wire (laughs) that went from one metal bit to another metal bit, and, um, but he knew the wire that he needed, anyway, we're in the middle of nowhere. He said he could have walked back to the city, but that was an hour's drive. So that would be a long walk. And even then, by the time he got there, the garage would be shut until the next morning. So I'm thinking, this is, this is not good. Like, I'm clearly in a dangerous area. There's no way of getting this wire. There's no way of contacting the the cars that have gone ahead because I didn't have a phone with me. I'm thinking, this is not good. And, um, I'm sat in the back of the car doing everything I know how to do. I'm singing the old hymns. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to imagine what the apostle Paul would have done. And he's there in prison singing. So maybe if I sing, maybe God will do something. I'm praying. I'm doing everything I know how to do and singing all the old classic hymns and nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, this man on a bicycle starts like just riding past us. Now, his bicycle, imagine with me, you know, like a little girl with a little pink basket she has on the front with the nice little tassels, the little basket at the front of her bicycle. His didn't have the pretty pink tassels, but he had the basket on the front of his bicycle. And he stopped to help, which that in itself is a miracle in Sierra Leone, let me tell you. But he stopped to help, and he just so happened to have in this tiny little basket, no bigger than, the, than that. He just so happened to have the exact wire that we needed. And he just so happened to know how to fit it. So he fitted it. And then he didn't ask for a penny. Again, another miracle in Sierra Leone. He fitted it for free. And then he just got on his bicycle and rode off. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to say that that was an angel. But I am not saying that that was not an angel. And the only thing going through my head is, my goodness, did I miss out on a selfie opportunity. That would have gone viral. And um, he just pedaled off and sure enough, started up the engine and along we went. But time and time again, we've seen God do the craziest of things where we're in the outbacks of beyond with no help. And just so happens to bring someone a bicycle who has the exact part we need. And we've seen God protect us again and again and again. And when you're walking in the plans and purposes of God, it doesn't matter whether he calls you to Afghanistan. Wherever he calls you, that's actually the safest place to be. Because when you're in the will of God, the grace of God just protects you and covers you. I'm going to say one last thing before I close. And that's the fourth principle. So you've got preparation. You've got provision. You've got protection. The last thing, the last principle that you need with vision is power. Jesus' last words to the disciples is wait. Wait. Wait until you are endued with power. That Jesus has just spent one-on-one with these disciples for years. Like, they've gone through the best Bible school possible. They've walked with Jesus, seen him heal the sick and raise the dead, and they've seen it all. Yet they still have to wait until they're endued with power. You see, we can do so much with our own hands. But if we will open up and allow the Holy Spirit to breathe upon our lives... Just watch what he will do. He will do what you can't do. He will do the impossible. And he'll do it through your hands and feet. You see, God's plan right from the start was to work through mankind. He he could bring his angels to come and save this place, but he doesn't. He chooses people like me and you to go and be the hands and feet to this world, to be the hands and feet. And I know you guys have just, you you guys have been the hands and feet throughout this whole flood season. You guys have been the hands and feet and I honor you guys for that because that's awesome. Some churches could choose to stay and do church. Other churches went and were the church and I honor you guys for what you did in the flood. But with your life, Let a principle always be to wait until you're endued with power. The Holy Spirit longs to work through our lives, but it'll only work through a vessel that's willing.